Hi, I'm Richie Zito. You're listening to Growing Up Rock Podcast with Stephen in Hollywood. Crank it up. Welcome to the Grown Up Rock Podcast, Richie Zito. What's going on, Richie? How are you, my friend? How are you doing today? I am doing awesome, man. So at the end of this month, you will be inducted into the Rock Gods Hall of Fame, which recognizes musicians, producers, etc., that have flown under the radar but have contributed so much to the world of rock and roll, whether it's playing or producing or writing, but are not completely known to the casual music fan. Now, I'm a rock geek, so obviously I'm quite familiar with Richie Zito. How do you view accolades like this when they come to you? Well, I mean, to me, it's just sort of a reminder of how lucky I've been to work with such amazingly talented people throughout the course of my life and career. And even when I see fellow inductees, you know, a few of them I know, a lot of them I have an enormous amount of respect for and happy to be in that in that category and in that, in that light. So that's sort of what it does for me. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, what's your views on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I think everyone likes to be acknowledged for their work. I mean, there's been a period in history from I mean, you want to start it with Elvis, you want to start it with the Beatles, you know, up until, I don't know, hip-hop-ish decades. It's, you know, a lot of talented human beings and, you know, enjoying their success and watching them get accolades and, you know, being respected. I, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I, I guess from my viewpoint, they maybe should have just called it the Music Hall of Fame as opposed to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is where a lot of people get kind of irritated because of the people that end up getting inducted into it, you know? Right. Well, kind of too bad for them. <laughs> so so I know you're great friends with Richie Kotzen. We're good buds. And yep. in fact, he used to be your neighbor, or maybe he still is. I don't know. No, not till recently, but for almost for a long time. Yes. Yeah. So will he be the one inducting you into the Rock Gods Hall of Fame? Yes. Yes, he will, which is really great. I'm really excited about that. In fact, I'm even going to play with him. He's going to sing a song and uh, I'm going to have the pleasure of playing with him, which is kind of comical. 
being on stage with a guy like him because his guitar play, playing is extraordinary. I'll tell you what, he's an amazing artist. And I think what a lot of people don't quite know is that to me, he's as good, if not even better of a singer than he is a guitar player, which is saying quite a bit. Yeah, he's got it all. And I've had the pleasure of working with him quite a lot over the years. So um, yeah, we're good pals. I have an enormous amount of respect for him. I love him. I'm very happy that he'll be able to uh, induct me. That's awesome. Into the rock and roll. <laughs> rock God's Hall of Fame. Rock God's Hall of Fame. And that's Rock yeah. God's with a Z, mind you. With a name like Zito, it's not hard for me to remember. <laughs> Richie Zito. Now that's good Brooklyn, New York uh, name, right? Full blown. <laughs> Uh, so I want to touch on some of the areas of your career, because with all you've done, uh, we would need the next week together uh, just to spotlight everything uh, that you've uh, had your hands in. So uh, we'll just touch on a group of stuff that's probably a little bit more known to our listeners. You're a producer, a musician, a songwriter, and an arranger. Do you prefer any of these above the other? Uh well, you know, it's, I mean, I like to think of myself as a, a, you know, a guitar player producer. I mean, musician is an interesting title and term that I'm very comfortable with. You know, I look at that as a gift. I'm gracious about having received that gift and the opportunity to use it as a producer. But I'm all about being a musician. I'm good with that. Yeah, I mean, you started out as a guitar player, I think, first and foremost. Right. I noticed on some of the records, I mean, I don't remember which record it was, but I noticed you had a credit on there for paying a Mellotron. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, you know, I always thought, well, the word, it's so, it's so funny because this is the 2019 and the word producer has gotten different, <laughs> different uh, connotations in the last 20 years. But the kind of record production that I, you know, say I'm associated with, it all came from being a musician. It was my entree into it. It gave me an ability to um, converse with musicians musically as opposed to just inferring it and trying to find a way to articulate it. You know, I can play a C chord, so it makes it really easy. So I really do feel like, you know, being a musician is really first and foremost what I owe it all to. But I like to think that I spend as much time in the studio producing and impacting. To me, it's all about impacting on the, on the music itself and the work itself and making the, the record itself. So whatever category I fit into, I fit into at that moment. Yeah, well, I think we can both agree that being a producer or a songwriter or an arranger is sort of a behind-the-scenes type situation, whereas opposed to being on stage in front of 45,000 people playing guitar with Elton John has a completely different feel to it and comes with a completely different, I don't know what you want to call it, high, basically. <laughs> Well, it's a different thing. I mean, first of all, it was 450,000 people. What did I say, 45,000? Yeah, not, yeah. To, not to correct you, but um, <laughs> For, uh, if it was the other way around, I would have just accepted it. Richie, but, that was only a few extra people. Come on, 45,450,000? Yeah, yeah, what's math? <laughs> um, it's different because when you're up there, first of all, you are performing. That's the bottom line. And although playing in the studio is a performance – uh, playing for a lot of people or any amount of people live is a different experience. Also, you're playing, you know, whatever number of songs, 10, 15, 20 songs. And when you're in the studio, you're focusing on three minutes of music. I mean, that's the single biggest difference. And, uh, you know, instead of playing 20 songs in two hours, you're playing a four minute, five minute, three minute song for two days or all day. 
So that's a big difference, which is what I enjoy. I mean, that's the thing I enjoy most is working on one song. And hopefully it uh, then becomes a, a record that has a life of its own. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting that that's what you enjoy most. That's good to know. I mean, you mentioned earlier that the word producer has developed different connotations over the years. And, and I happen to agree with you a hundred percent because I think producers kind of, listen, people can put their name as a producer on a record and never be present for the entire recording of that album. I've, I've seen uh, stories just like that. But you're a, you're a hands-on producer. You're a musician. You probably contribute your, your musical knowledge to helping arrange the best song as possible. Let me ask you this. To me, it seems like a great producer should be a musician and an arranger. But that being said, can a great producer also be inhibited by being a musician, meaning that they are hearing and listening with musicians' ears as opposed to just emotion and feel? Well, I mean, to me, the record-making process and the artist-producer relationship is really a relationship. I mean, different artists prosper differently, you know, prosper with a different type of producer. There's certain artists that don't need you to do as much, you know, musically hands-on. And there are certain artists that need it a lot. To me, it's the, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, the, it's the marriage of the two, you know, the two types that fit right. I mean, sometimes a great producer just opens the door, walks in and says, change that to a chord, a different chord. Boom. I think, you know, you're creating history, whether you realize it or not. Right. So, so that, you know what I mean? It's like, you, you know, you can say a lot and you can know a lot of notes, but sometimes it's like what you don't say and staying out of the artist's creativity. And sometimes it's, you know, when people are scratching their head about what we should, what we should do and what we should do next. And what should we do? Like the good news about being a musician and have a musician's background is I have a pretty good understanding of uh, what will work, you know, having been in the studio for so many years, you know what I mean? So it's not as much shooting in the dark where artists, you know, even the best artists, even the greatest artists, even the most successful artists, you know, they make 10 albums in a, in a decade perhaps. And yeah, I've been involved in many, many more in 10 years. So, yeah, that's a great point. And I think a lot of times it's those happy accidents in the studio that end up being iconic, whether it's a noise, a sound, a chord, a note, whatever, you know, right. No doubt. Yeah, musical history was made that way. Yeah. Plain and simple. And staying out. I mean, I, I listen to a lot of old rock just because, you know, as a grown up, I listened to it differently than when I was 16. You know, more analytically, more, oh, like, that's what he did. Oh, wow, that's how he did it, whatever. And when I listen to records like Led Zeppelin's records, and I listen to, like, the stuff that just came out of someone's, you know, mind and hands, if, if I was producing that record, I would just shut up <laughs> and, let, and let him go. So uh, I think it's so easy I, to say that now. It's just easy to say because I think I'm not sure exactly the, you know, the lineage of who produced Led Zeppelin records and how and when and why and where, but obviously they knew what to do. Yeah. And I think I have a gut feeling they just sort of stayed out of his way and made sure he sounded great. Right. You started out as a musician long before you became a producer, right? So Correct. Yes. So was there a moment in your career where you said, hey, I really enjoy this and I really think I'm pretty good at it. Let me focus a little bit more on this as opposed to playing guitar. Well, I mean, I always wanted to have more input into the records. 
I'm going to use the word records because I always find, you know, find it amusing. People don't even know what that means even. Right. But, it, you know, I always wanted more to say and more impact on records. I was always influenced intensely, in, whatever the word is. I'm from Brooklyn. What do you want? Um, <laughs> I, I, was, I mean, I was the kid that sat there with the album in my hand, reading credits over and over again. So I knew there were people having impact on these records that, you know, it's funny because I talked to people over the years and most people always thought that, even the Beatles would go in a studio and someone would count off one, two, three, four. And then they would play 10 songs in a row once. And that was the album. I kind of figured that out sooner than later that that wasn't the case. I always wanted more input. Yeah. I always wanted to, I always saw the idea of, of doing something once and having it live. You know what I mean? Instead of right. just the next day, next show, same songs. And also when I was young, I was lucky enough to be in the studio. Like when I was 15, first thing I did was in the studio with, Tom Dowd, you know what I mean? And so I got to see hands-on some people make records. And the greatest gift I've had being a musician is that I've had the opportunity to work with really talented producers. Right. I don't think that's the greatest thing because I don't think a lot of, you know, producers, even ones that are musicians, like I had sort of a separate career and, and it gave me the opportunity to be in the studio with extraordinarily talented producers like Giorgio Moroder, like Tom Dowd, like Gus Dudgeon and Chris Thomas, and, and so you get a you get a different spin on how people do things. And, you know, I learned a lot. So by the time I really got the opportunity to really produce records, I went in there with a you know a ton of knowledge. Well, and I think I'm very grateful for that. And I wouldn't have gotten that without having been a musician. Well, and on the opposite end, as a producer, I think you can honestly say that you've had the amazing opportunity to work with amazing artists and musicians as a producer, right? I mean, because you... Yes. I mean, I, yes. I, I will go through this list of just a handful of the people that you've worked with at some point here. I got a few more things I want to get into and then we'll cover some of this. But I mean, it's it's ridiculous when I start doing research on you and start seeing some of this stuff. Do you find a difference in producing, say, a new or younger band versus, say, somebody, a super group like, say, Bad English, where uh, you have veterans that probably are not used to being told no or you can do better much? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's very different, like sort of, you know, taking someone through the process for the first time. And that's a whole other thing. And it's another thing going into the studio with a group of people that have experienced success on many, many different levels. And it's, it's just so different. I mean, I tend to have had more success with artists that have been in the studio making records before. I, I don't know why exactly, maybe because I'm a musician and we come in at the same sort of equal footing, not equal being better or not better, but in terms of experience wise. So, I, you know, I, I tend to, uh, it seems to me I've had more, you know, success at, at the very least with the artists that have been doing it for a minute. Right. Yeah, of course. But there's some amazing producers. I mean, I'm a fan of the record production, obviously, that they take in baby bands and they just come out with magic. And, I, you know, God bless them. Yeah. It just wasn't my path. Right. Well, let's cover a few albums that you were a part of that would be most known by our particular listening audience. And a couple of these are not going to be big surprises to you, but a couple of them are a little bit deeper in your catalog. So the first couple bands that I want to spotlight is a band that we recently discovered, even though that they're an older band, we recently discovered them and spotlighted them on one of our music segments here on the show, which is Von Groove. 
You produced oh the first Von Groove record. Wow, that's a that's a name I haven't heard in a while. What a great record that is, though. That yeah, those guys, that was talented. Those guys were talented. <laughs> yeah, they were talented. One of the guys become, became a very successful writer producer. Yeah, one of the, one of those guys went on to do a lot of um, writing producing, like in the nineties. You know, a lot of time. You know, there was a lot of records yeah. that were made by writer producers. Yeah. You know, yeah, he turned out to be a very you know successful guy. Yeah, I don't remember very much of it. I yeah. know that they had it was it was pretty much a conceived, you know, studio artist. Right. Frankly. And I probably knew less of that when I got involved. But they were talented guys. And I don't remember that record very well because it kind of went by kind of quick. You know, you know what I mean? It was yeah. they were more than prepared. And as is a lot of stuff, it gets missed when it's a timing thing and it comes out at the wrong time or whatever. But I do enjoy that record. I know a lot of listeners like it. And to go along with that, another Canadian act, Prism, as well, that had quite a bit of success in Canada. Yeah, that was fun. Because the, the heritage of that band, is, I think, I'm pretty sure Bruce Fairburn was in that band. When it originally, I mean, that band has been, was around for quite a you know, right. number of years. And I have a feeling, and I don't want to be you know, wrong, but I have a feeling that at the, at the beginning of that band, Bruce Fairburn was in there. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was fun. I had a good time. It was mostly a studio. I never toured with him or anything. I just sort of was a, sure. you know, the guitar player sort of, um, I, you know, I mean, I played all the guitars, wrote right. a lot of the songs. In fact, all of them, I think I co-wrote. Yeah. But uh, well, it wasn't a touring concern at that point. Sure. Yeah, it was a fun record to make. Real fun. Yeah. The Cult Ceremony. Baby, the world didn't want me to run. Did you try to bring me down to my knees? Yeah. Wow, honey. Yeah, yeah. 
Love them. Love that band. Love that band. One of my favorite bands ever. Taiketo. Taiketo went off to have a pretty great career, I think, outside of America. I like those guys a lot. Danny Vaughn and I stayed in touch over the years.
Danny Vaughn is an amazing singer, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he really is, and a good guy. White Lion, of course. Yep, love those guys. We're pa- we were pals. I had a good time in those days, my friend. I just- <laughs> yeah, well, of course you did. I mean, you know, I worked with some great guys. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, Vito is from you know Staten Island, which is essentially New York. Only they left and jumped over the water. I think. Do you stay in contact with Vito? Have you heard from him at all? No, not not, not in a long time. Honestly speaking, I mean, he's kind of the guy that left music behind and just quit and disappeared. I, I guess that's so, but who knows what people do sometimes just because we don't hear what, what they're doing. You know, but no, I lost touch with him a long while ago, sadly. Yeah. Mr. Big. Love those guys. I worked. <laughs> yeah. Well, I worked when I did Mr. Big, Richie Costin was in the band. Yeah. So that was, you know, big fun. We're pals. And Eric Martin and I go back. Uh, I produced a solo album of Eric's on Capitol Records. One of my early, one of the early records that I produced. So I had a relationship that goes back pretty far with those guys. And speaking of Kotzen, you also produced, and this is a little bit deeper one, but I absolutely love this record, Mother's Head Family Reunion.
Yeah, I talk about that. We, I had lunch with Richie the other day, and uh, you know his fans are hardcore, and they that's their grail. That's their grail. That's their Richie Cotton Holy Grail. And uh, yeah, I'm proud of that record. I'm very proud of that record. It's a great record. You don't know my co-host, but my co-host has a man-sized man crush on uh, <laughs> Richie Cotton. He absolutely loves everything that Richie does. Yeah, he's pretty sensational. <laughs> he's, pretty, he's pretty sensational. I just know him so well, and I've been in the studio with him so many times, and I've seen him play so many times. I go as a fan all the time. Whenever he's playing nearby, I go. And uh, yeah, I don't have a man crush on him, but I like him. A, but, but I'm a big fan. <laughs> I, I, I kid, of course. We say we say, we always say there's gonna Richie takes out a restraining order on my co-host because uh, my co-host just uh, really appreciates everything that yeah. Richie does from an artist yeah. standpoint. Man's got it. Native Tongue, I thought, was one of the best Poison records that they released. I mean, yes, it was different, but I thought it was a fantastic record. Which Yeah, I like that a lot. That was a different record because of Richie. I'm not one of those guys that says, well, if timing was different, oh, if that was different. But music wasn't really changing radically at that moment in time. Right. I think that, period. And it was going somewhere else. The name Poison probably wasn't in your best interest to have at that moment in time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Lots of careers that were like like Poison, that were sensationally large, successful, larger than life, you know, got sort of like swept away for that minute. And uh, that's one of the records I think that came along at a time that wasn't in its best interest to come along. But I am very proud of that record as well. Yeah. Do you have any uh, recollections or memories on doing that Rat self-titled in 1999? Sure. Yeah, a lot. Like it was yesterday. Yeah. Okay. We used to, uh, uh, Stephen Piercy had a, like a, I guess it was a garage at some point. And we just sat there and, and you know, worked every day on pre-production, worked out the songs. It was really great. We'd go in like lunchtime, just after lunch, work for, you know, four or five hours. And we did that for a while. And, you know, I kind of got to know them more. This interesting thing is I got to know them a lot as, uh, you know, in pre-production. Yeah. Because we were there every day for the first, you know, for the first part of the relationship. And we were a good, you know, a good month or so in there. So, you know, my recollection, oddly enough, is more about uh, about doing pre-production. I really I, I like working with those guys. Warren's a sensational guitar player. There was only one guitar player at that time. Right. So, uh, yeah, I had a good time. Yeah, there were some interesting uh, co-writes on that record from uh, Jack Blades, and uh, I think Taylor Rhodes came in on that record as well and did some co-writes. Right. I got in after the writing was more or less done. You had a co-write on that record, I think. Yeah, I think I did as well. Yeah. But uh, I think even those co-writes were done before I came in or if they weren't, I wasn't, you know, in the room. Yeah. And then uh, a couple of uh, the bigger records for you, I think, were probably like uh, Cheap Trick, Lap of Luxury and Hearts Brigade. Yeah, those are great records. Yeah. It, the hardest thing about producing Heart is trying to figure out which version and saying was better than the other because one was one was better than the other. It's <laughs> almost you just sit there and say, like, now what do I do? <laughs> and you know robin zander had a lot of that that thing too he just opened his mouth and was like fuck um so i mean those two records specifically working with those two singers was extraordinary yeah. i mean really and truly you know extraordinary with any of these bands did you ever just like take the first take that they did and say man that's that's it we don't need anything else well i, I, I mean like it was yesterday with, with, with ann wilson i would say okay let's do another and i found myself saying, you know, why are you even saying that? But, you know, you know, it was my responsibility and my desire, you know, to get a few takes and just 
to have the opportunity to, you know, to pick the best stuff. Right. But with her, it was almost, all you know, do is close your eyes and just point because it was all, all the same, all fantastic. Yeah. So now I think a lot of people don't really realize that the bad English record. So the debut bad English record, that was essentially going to be just a John Waite solo record, right? Well, yeah. I mean, that band started with John Waite and me. <laughs> I mean, he had the record deal and the talent, and I was sort of, you know, I committed to it as a producer. Right. And it started as John was going to, if memory serves, you know, John was going to put together a band. Yeah. Which obviously he did. And then one by one, I think he started the conversations first with Jonathan Kane. And he knew those guys, you know, obviously because they were in the babies together. Right. And Ricky also was in the babies. So that was a natural thing. And then Neil Sean came on board. He wasn't sure if he really wanted to be part of it for sure. He wanted to play on it. He wanted to be part of it musically. And then he committed and then he brought Dean Castanova or it's a hard word to say two words together. And so it, it just expanded and expanded and expanded and turned into something different than I think it would have had John just followed, you know, the original path of just, you know, putting together a band of really talented musicians and collaborators. But yeah, that's exactly true. It started with John, a record deal and me. And off we went. Well, at any point in time, once Jonathan Kane and Ricky Phillips came into the band, did anybody look at each other and go, well, is this a baby's reunion? And we just need to get Wally Stocker and Tony Brock back in or. Well, I mean, I don't know. I thought it was kind of the, you know, the best of it all, Yeah. you know, because I just thought it was the best of it all. You, you know, it was just that that was a good record. I mean, I keep saying the same thing. I love those guys. That was a good record. You, you know what I mean? But that was uh and I really mean it. That's why it's hard. It's like the same interview. Just you can flip flop everything I say. But yeah, I guess that's how, I don't know how they felt. Right. <laughs> you know, to be honest with you, yeah. because the, they, their history was, you know, preceded me and it wasn't a history of all being together. Right. And it wasn't, you know, like usually you're with a band that's either been together or kind of grew up together or formed in L.A. or something like that. That was two different bands. And the, the, the history was there. It was it was exciting. It was, right. it was an interesting, interesting record. Yeah. Well, you know why? I'll tell you why. Because I just think I just realized it's like most of the records, like bands are like societies. You know what I mean? They all have sort of delegated roles and responsibilities. You, you know what I mean? And that one didn't have it right. because they were put together and they were all successful in their own right. And they were kind of sort of figuring out how to be a band while making that record with having different histories and stuff. So it was, it was pretty exciting on a lot of different levels. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Do you find time just to listen to music, whether it's at home? All the time. Okay. All the time. How do you consume your music? Are you a streamer? Well, I listen to music mostly in the car, Mm -hmm. which I've been doing since I had a driver's license. Sure. And, you know, I turn on the radio and now it's satellite. I listen to 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, Beatles, all, all those kinds of records. I even listen to the, you know, the pop, you know, the Kiss FM or the Z100. I listen to both of those just, you know, for whatever reason, see what's going on. Sure. So I spend a lot of my time listening in my car and I live in LA, so I'm always in my car. Right. But then I'll hear a song and it'll sort of, in, you know, it'll sort of, oh, wow, I forgot about that. I'll go home and I'll pull out a Led Zeppelin record. Mostly, I usually go to YouTube, frankly, yeah. and, and listen to what I want. I don't sit down and listen to whole albums. Right. But something will strike my, strike a nerve. It's like, oh, wow, I haven't heard that in a while. And I'll listen to it. I'll pick up a guitar and learn how to play it. You know, so yeah, music has always been a very big part of my soul. Yeah. 
Uh, out of the ridiculous amount of artists that you've worked with over the years, is there a singer and a guitar player that you did not know that much about maybe going into a project that just blew you away with their talent? It's pretty easy when you go into a project with, say, Ringo Starr, Elton John, you kind of know what you're getting in terms of talent. But right. people like Kotzen and Eric Martin and Vito Brados, those guys of the world, not so much, you know? Well, you know, I knew, I mean, I'm telling you, I knew Eric, first of all, because I produced his first so when I think it was his first solo album, yeah. and then not, not only that, I spent a lot of time in the Bay Area. I worked with Eddie Money, sure. And um, so you know, I you know I spent time up there, and he was very much a part of like the Bay Area music uh, scene. So I kind of knew him, and then having made a first record with him, so I knew you know darn well how talented he was. And Richie's kind of the only one because well, he was 22, <laughs> yeah. and he and at that point I think he'd only made uh, instrumental music with Mike Varney on, on his label. Right. So he was the surprise only because I'd never heard of him before, never knew of him before because he was so young and so sort of starting out. But no, I pretty much, I did my homework with right. everybody I worked with. Yeah. And knew what they could do. And and had heard anybody that was successful that I worked with before, I knew their work. Sure. Really and truly. So that's the big surprise for me. Yeah. Are there any records that you produced or played on that maybe weren't a huge success that you wish people would seek out and listen to because you still think to this day they were great records and should should have had more exposure? I, I mean, it's going to sound weird, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just it's you know some fared better than others and when you go back and listen it's very clear why and you know some weren't some didn't find the audience for whatever reason so you know and I'm not, you're not really in it for that you're in it for that moment when you sort of make something happen sure and you know it's almost like all you can do is please yourself and use those choices in the best interest of the artist and who gets it gets it right you know what i mean you yeah, so I don't really look like, wow, I got cheated out of that. Wow, I got cheated out of that. I don't really look at it that way. Uh, I you know? got I mean, obvious, obvious stuff, you can see where things lined up yeah. and just worked. Because it takes a lot of things to make something successful that have nothing to do with music. It's so many different things. Yeah. And so, you know, I, th I don't know. I think everything got a shot. I don't think any got buried or, you know, I just, you know, I don't know. I, I, I always looked at that because most people think, Everyone I've ever heard of or met is always like, well, that should have been most successful. Well, that should have been a hit. Well, you know, it, it, it did what it did. And that's not the purpose. You make the record and hope people love it. You're a live for the moment kind of guy then. Well, I think you have to, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I think sometimes we all <laughs> well, wish can... we could, but sometimes we're not all as good at doing that. Yeah. Well, no. Yeah. Well, you know, discipline and experience yeah. brings some things along with it. And, and it's one of those things. Yeah. Well, Richie, you've been awesome with your time. I want to be respectful of your time. Is there anything else that you would like to speak to or mention before we let you go? Well, I mean, since this is, uh, you know, based upon or my involvement or these questions are based upon the uh, Rock Gods ceremony and induction, yep. I just want to say I'm real proud of it, pr proud to be part of it, proud to be in the same, you know, uh, same league of gentlemen, you know, like Bob Glob and, and Jim Keltner and Ross Hogarth, who I've worked with before. and if I didn't say Danny Korchmore, I meant to. And uh, so I'm proud of it. I'm happy to be sort of recognized. And thanks for your time. Yeah, we will link to the Rock Gods Hall of Fame in our show notes, as well as richiezito.com, 
where you can find all the information on Richie uh, and his career as well. Because if you've never heard of Richie, it's it's wonderful for you just to go Google and see what you find because there's all kinds of stuff out there on the work that you've done, which is, you know, like I said, pretty amazing. And that's part of the great thing about my particular job when I go into looking into an interview and doing some investigation on an artist, I get to find all these cool things that I didn't know. So it's fun. I'm happy to be part of this conversation. Absolutely. All right, Richie, uh, we appreciate it. Uh, Congratulations once again on your induction into the Rock Gods Hall of Fame. Uh, Well-deserved, my friend, and uh, we will... Crank it up. (laughs) That's right, crank it up. We will crank it up and catch up with you later. Thank you, brother. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.